At this time, let's turn in our copies of God's Word to the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 42. And we'll be reading up through the end of chapter 44. Jeremiah chapter 42, beginning in verse 1. Let's hear now the Word of God. Now all the captains of the forces, Johanan the son of Kareah, Jezaniah the son of Hoshiah, and all the people from the least to the greatest came near and said to Jeremiah the prophet, Please let our petition be acceptable to you and pray for us to the Lord your God for all this remnant since we are left but a few of many, as you can see. That the Lord your God may show us the way in which we should walk and the thing we should do. Then Jeremiah the prophet said to them, I have heard. Indeed, I will pray to the Lord your God according to your words, and it shall be that whatever the Lord answers you, I will declare it to you. I will keep nothing back from you. So they said to Jeremiah, Let the Lord be a true and faithful witness between us if we do not according to everything which the Lord your God sends us by you. Whether it is pleasing or displeasing, we will obey the voice of the Lord our God to whom we send you, that it may be well with us when we obey the voice of the Lord our God. And it happened after ten days that the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Then he called Johanan the son of Kareah, all the captains of the forces which were with him, and all the people from the least even to the greatest, and said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, to whom you sent me to present your petition before him. If you will still remain in this land then I will build you and not pull you down. And I will plant you and not pluck you up. For I relent concerning the disaster that I have brought upon you. Do not be afraid of the king of Babylon, of whom you are afraid. Do not be afraid of him, says the Lord, for I am with you to save you and deliver you from his hand. And I will show you mercy, that he may have mercy on you and cause you to return to your own land. But if you say, we will not dwell in this land, disobeying the voice of the Lord your God, saying, no, but we will go to the land of Egypt where we shall see no war, nor hear the sound of the trumpet, nor be hungry for bread, and there we will dwell." Then hear now the word of the Lord, O remnant of Judah. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, If you wholly set your faces to enter Egypt and go to dwell there, then it shall be that the sword which you feared shall overtake you there in the land of Egypt. The famine of which you were afraid shall follow close after you there in Egypt and there you shall die. So shall it be with all the men who set their faces to go to Egypt to dwell there. They shall die by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. And none of them shall remain or escape from the disaster that I will bring upon them. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, as my anger and my fury have been poured out, on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so will my fury be poured out on you when you enter Egypt. And you shall be an oath, an astonishment, a curse, and a reproach, and you shall see this place no more. The Lord has said concerning you, O remnant of Judah, do not go to Egypt. Know certainly that I have admonished you this day For you were hypocrites in your hearts when you sent me to the Lord your God, saying, Pray for us to the Lord our God, and according to all that the Lord your God says, so declare to us, and we will do it. And I have this day declared it to you, 
but you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord your God or anything which He has sent you by Me. Now therefore, know certainly that you shall die by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence in the place where you desire to go to dwell. Now it happened when Jeremiah had stopped speaking to all the people all the words of the Lord their God, for which the Lord their God had sent him to them, all these words, that Azariah the son of Hoshiah, Johanan the son of Kareah, and all the proud men spoke, saying to Jeremiah, You speak falsely. The Lord our God has not sent you to say, Do not go to Egypt to dwell there. But Baruch the son of Neriah has set you against us to deliver us into the hand of the Chaldeans that they may put us to death or carry us away captive to Babylon. So Johanan the son of Kareah, all the captains of the forces and all the people would not obey the voice of the Lord to remain in the land of Judah. But Johanan the son of Kareah and all the captains of the forces took all the remnant of Judah who had returned to dwell in the land of Judah from all nations where they had been driven, men, women, children, the king's daughters, and every person from Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, had left with Gedaliah the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, and Jeremiah the prophet, and Baruch the son of Neriah. So they went to the land of Egypt, for they did not obey the voice of the Lord, And they went as far as Tapanes. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah in Tapanes, saying, Take large stones in your hand and hide them in the sight of the men of Judah, in the clay, in the brick courtyard, which is at the entrance to Pharaoh's house in Tapanes, and say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will send and bring Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and will set his throne above these stones that I have hidden, and he will spread his royal pavilion over them. When he comes, he shall strike the land of Egypt and deliver to death those appointed for death, and to captivity those appointed for captivity, and to the sword those appointed for the sword." I will kindle a fire in the houses of the gods of Egypt, and he shall burn them and carry them away captive. And he shall array himself with the land of Egypt as a shepherd puts on his garment, and he shall go out from there in peace. He shall also break the sacred pillars of Beth Shemesh that are in the land of Egypt, and the houses of the gods of the Egyptians he shall burn with fire." The word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the Jews who dwell in the land of Egypt, who dwell at Migdal, at Tapanes, at Naph, and in the country of Pathros, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, You have seen all the calamity that I have brought on Jerusalem and on the cities of Judah, and behold this day they are a desolation, and no one dwells in them because of their wickedness which they have committed to provoke me to anger, in that they went to burn incense and serve other gods whom they did not know, they, nor you, nor your fathers. However, I have sent to you all my servants, the prophets, rising early and sending them, saying, Oh, do not do this abominable thing that I hate But they did not listen or incline their ear to turn from their wickedness, to burn no incense to other gods. So my fury and my anger were poured out and kindled in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. And they are wasted and desolate as it is this day. Now therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the God of Israel, Why do you commit this great evil against yourselves to cut off from you man and woman, child and infant out of Judah 
leaving none to remain. In that you provoke me to wrath with the works of your hands, burning incense to other gods in the land of Egypt, where you have gone to dwell, that you may cut yourselves off and be a curse and a reproach among all nations of the earth. Have you forgotten the wickedness of your fathers, the wickedness of the kings of Judah, the wickedness of their wives, your own wickedness and the wickedness of your wives which they committed in the land of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? They have not been humbled to this day, nor have they feared. They have not walked in My law or in My statutes that I set before you and your fathers. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will set My face against you for catastrophe and for cutting off all Judah. And I will take the remnant of Judah who have set their faces to go into the land of Egypt and to dwell there, and they shall all be consumed and fall in the land of Egypt. They shall be consumed by the sword and by famine. They shall die from the least to the greatest by the sword and by famine. And they shall be an oath, an astonishment, a curse, and a reproach. For I will punish those who dwell in the land of Egypt as I have punished Jerusalem by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. So that none of the remnant of Judah who have gone into the land of Egypt to dwell there shall escape or survive, lest they return to the land of Judah to which they desire to return and dwell. For none shall return except those who escape. Then all the men who knew that their wives had burned incense to other gods, with all the women who stood by, a great multitude, and all the people who dwelt in the land of Egypt in Pathros, answered Jeremiah, saying, As for the word that you have spoken to us in the name of the Lord, we will not listen to you, but we will certainly do whatever has gone out of our own mouth to burn incense to the Queen of Heaven and pour out drink offerings to her as we have done. We and our fathers, our kings and our princes in the city of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. For then we had plenty of food, were well off and saw no trouble. But since we stopped burning incense to the Queen of Heaven and pouring out drink offerings to her, we have lacked everything and have been consumed by the sword and by famine. The women also said, And when we burned incense to the Queen of Heaven and poured out drink offerings to her, did we make cakes for her to worship her and pour out drink offerings to her without our husband's permission? Then Jeremiah spoke to all the people, the men, the women, and all the people who had given him that answer, saying, The incense that you burned in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem, you and your fathers, your kings and your princes, and the people of the land, did not the Lord remember them? And did it not come into His mind? So the Lord could no longer bear it, because of the evil of your doings and because of the abominations which you committed. Therefore, your land is a desolation, an astonishment, a curse, and without inhabitant as it is this day. Because you have burned incense, and because you have sinned against the Lord and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord or walked in His law, in His statutes, or in His testimonies. Therefore, this calamity has happened to you as at this day. Moreover, Jeremiah said to all the people and to all the women, Hear the word of the Lord, all Judah who are in the land of Egypt. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, saying, You and your wives have spoken with your mouths and fulfilled with your hands, saying, We will surely keep our vows that we have made to burn incense to the Queen of Heaven and pour out drink offerings to her. You will surely keep your vows and perform your vows. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. All Judah who dwell in the land of Egypt, 
Behold, I have sworn by my great name, says the Lord, that my name shall no more be named in the mouth of any man of Judah in all the land of Egypt, saying, The Lord God lives. Behold, I will watch over them for adversity and not for good. And all the men of Judah who are in the land of Egypt shall be consumed by the sword and by famine until there is an end to them. Yet a small number who escape the sword shall return from the land of Egypt to the land of Judah, and all the remnant of Judah who have gone to the land of Egypt to dwell there shall know whose words will stand, mine or theirs. And this shall be a sign to you, says the Lord, that I will punish you in this place, that you may know that my words will surely stand against you for adversity. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will give Pharaoh Hophra, king of Egypt, into the hand of his enemies and into the hand of those who seek his life, as I gave Zedekiah, king of Judah, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, his enemy who sought his life. May the Lord bless the reading of his word to us this morning. Amen. Well, seeking the Lord's help and blessing this morning, let's turn back to the passage that we read in Jeremiah's prophecy, focusing our attention especially upon chapter 44, verse 4. However, I sent to you all my servants, the prophets, rising early and sending them, saying, Oh, do not do this abominable thing that I hate. Oh, do not do this abominable thing that I hate. This morning we find ourselves less than a month away from an election in which there will be on the ballot several proposals, including Proposal 3. Proposal 3, which is essentially titled as the uh, Reproductive Freedom Amendment that would be added to our Michigan State Constitution. Uh, a state constitution which says in the preamble, and I quote, We the people of the state of Michigan, grateful to Almighty God for the blessings of freedom and earnestly desiring to secure these blessings undiminished to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this constitution. And this version of the Constitution was approved in 1963. So, according to the Constitution of our state, we're grateful to Almighty God. You could say, which God? And I would ask you, uh, which Bible did Governor Whitmer swear in with her left hand on? Uh, it, it was a family Bible, a Christian Bible. Uh, so, at least our current governor recognizes in some sense, at least in that public action, that we're grateful to the Almighty God of the Bible for the blessings of freedom and earnestly we desire to secure those blessings undiminished to ourselves and our posterity. And yet we have proposal three on the ballot seeking quote-unquote reproductive freedom. Uh, You'll find an information sheet on the book table. They're pink-colored Uh, sheets stapled together. But this Proposal 3 says every individual has a fundamental right to reproductive freedom. It says that right is including but not limited to, and among the things mentioned, sterilization and abortion care. This proposal says that uh, it protects an individual's right to reproductive freedom. That right shall not be denied. In no circumstance shall the state prohibit an abortion that in the professional judgment of an attending healthcare professional is uh, medically indicated to protect the life or physical or mental health of the pregnant individual. We're told that these 
rights to reproductive freedom among individuals uh, shall not be discriminated against. In other words, the state can't say, well, the right to reproductive freedom applies only to adults. In other words, it applies to children. It it applies to a a 12-year-old girl who uh, consents to a relationship with a 45-year-old man because it's her reproductive freedom. Uh, This is the language. It's not discriminated. There are no age requirements here for reproductive freedom. Consent is now possible for all individuals. So much for statutory rape, uh, prosecuting pedophilia, child sex abuse, because if you can prove consent, this individual, 12-year-old, has the right. Can't be discriminated against. Uh, And we're told that in enforcing the laws of the land, the state must not infringe on that individual's autonomous decision-making. So this is set before us less than a month away, and it is really something that we must consider as the people of God. We can't just pretend it's not there. We can't shut our eyes and put our fingers in our ears. In the providence of God, this is set before us and we need to understand how to view it and how to respond to it. Because there can be a number of good responses and there can be some very bad responses. How shall we then live? How shall we live in response to this pending ballot proposal. And as I mentioned, the text that we're considering this morning is this. Oh, do not do this abominable thing that I hate. These are the words of God in Jeremiah 44 verse 4. Well, let's understand the context of this passage as we seek to incorporate it into our thoughts and meditations this morning. The context here is that In the providence of God, the people of Judah in the southern kingdom have been judged for their idolatry and disobedience. God has raised up Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and Jerusalem and the temple have been destroyed. The people have been slaughtered, enslaved, taken captive. Only a small remnant was left in the land, and uh, there was a man named Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, who was made the governor by the Babylonian forces. And this was a godly man. This was a friend. This was the son of one of Jeremiah's friends. Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam. Ahikam stood up and defended Jeremiah when he was in hot water with the government earlier in the book. So a godly man was made the governor. And yet, uh, there were some nefarious characters in chapter 41 who assassinated, who conspired to assassinate Gedaliah. And he naively allowed this to happen. He was warned about it. He, he just didn't take the warning seriously. And he was murdered. And so now the people that are left, the assassins have left town. Now the people that are left are faced with a decision, what do we do? And toward the end of chapter 41... We're told, verse 17, they departed and dwelt in the habitation of Kimham, which is near Bethlehem, as they went on their way to Egypt because of the Chaldeans, for they were afraid of them. So the new leadership rises up to fill the vacuum of the murdered governor. They're afraid that the Chaldeans are going to get very angry because the person they set over Judah has been murdered, and they're, they're concerned that Babylon is just going to slaughter All of them, so they need to leave Judah and go to Egypt, which at that point was probably the most formidable opponent of Babylon. So they're thinking, well, maybe Egypt can can hold back the Babylonians, and so we will go take shelter under the shadow of Pharaoh's wings. Now, they've already gone in the direction of Egypt, and that's when we come to the passage we read in chapter 42 where they're, they're already on their way to Egypt, but as is often the case with people that are already kind of, they, they know what they're going to do, they've set their mind to it, but they decide, well, maybe I'll ask for some confirmation from God for this idea that I've already set my mind upon. And so they ask Jeremiah, they say, pray for us and ask the Lord for wisdom and counsel and whatever the Lord says, we'll do it. We promise Uh, Even if it's unfavorable toward our opinions, we will submit to it. 
and we will obey the word of the Lord. Of course, Jeremiah prays for them and seeks the Lord's wisdom, and the Lord says, just stay in the land of Judah. I will protect you. I will make sure that Babylon gets a proper report that it wasn't you that killed this governor, that it was these other uh, characters, and, and I'll protect you. And you just need to trust me. Stay in the land. Do not go to Egypt. And at this point, it becomes clear the hypocrisy of the people that they say, okay, well, uh, we don't think this really came from the Lord. And so we're not going to take it seriously. We're going to continue. And then they head to Egypt where they conform to the pattern of this world by reincorporating pagan worship into their lifestyle, burning incense to other gods in the land of Egypt. And of course, Jeremiah is a sort of captive along for the ride with them. They take him with them to Egypt, and so he's observing all of this, and he rebukes them for their disobedience in going to Egypt, and he rebukes them for burning incense to foreign gods in disobeying God's commandments. He rebukes them and pronounces judgment on them that God Himself has set His face against them. And just as He destroyed Jerusalem and caused Judea to be taken captive, He will bring judgment upon these Jews that have gone to Egypt. And they will be utterly destroyed except for a few people that that represent a remnant that can go tell everybody else about how uh, God's judgment was poured forth. So that's the context here. And so with that context in mind, chapter 44, verse 4, the Lord is here reminding the people through Jeremiah, He's reminding the people that He punished the disobedience of the Jews when they were in Jerusalem, when they were in Judea, when they were uh, before the Babylonian captivity, when they were disobeying His commandments, disobeying the word of His prophets, and when they were uh, worshiping idols. And He says, during that time, I sent to you all My servants, the prophets, rising early and sending them, saying, Oh, do not do this abominable thing that I hate. And this shows us that God hates sin. God hates all sin. God hates every act of disobedience against the Word that He's given us by His apostles and prophets from Genesis to Revelation. God hates all sin. And every time we disobey God's Word, either with respect to our duties toward Him, in terms of loving Him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, in terms of worshiping Him from the heart in a biblical way, keeping His name holy, using it in a holy and reverent way, in terms of keeping His Sabbath day, the first day of the week, whenever we violate His commandments of the first table of the law, whenever we violate the second table of the law, when we disobey and dishonor authority, when we uh, endanger the lives of other people, or cause harm, even verbally, through uh, a sinful, hateful attitude that spews forth evil words, when we are sexually impure in thought, word, or deed, when we violate the property rights of other people and disrespect and dishonor their property or even steal it, when we lie, when we speak the truth unseasonably and we use it to a wrong end, when we exaggerate, when we sin, when we covet, when we're discontent and complaining and not happy with the providence of God towards us in our circumstances, when we violate any and every command of God in the Bible, God hates it. And He says to us, if we're being tempted with further sin, oh, and that oh means that God is speaking forth from the very depth of His being, His character, His holiness, the, the, as if in human terms, as if there was someone who was just uh, filled with passion and zeal. Oh, do not do this abominable thing that I hate. Do not do it. We could go through the Bible, uh, Proverbs six sixteen and following, where it speaks of the Lord hating even a haughty glance, a prideful look, 
Hating hands that shed innocent blood. Feet that are swift to do evil. The Lord hates all sin. And the fact is that God in the person of Jesus Christ is no different. We sang it in Psalm 45 verse 7 that the Lord Jesus Christ has a scepter of justice and of righteousness. He hates evil. He hates unrighteousness. He loves righteousness. He loves what is upright and pleasing in the sight of God. And he tells the churches in the book of Revelation that he hates the deeds of the Nicolaitans. So, God hates sin. God finds all sin to be abominable. And God in the person of Christ. Jesus Christ, who is meek and gentle. And He says, learn of Me. I'm meek and, and gentle. And, uh, but He hates sin. He hates sin. And Proverbs 8, verse 13 Proverbs 8, verse 13. I'm just going to read the second half because Lord willing, we'll come back to the first half in due time. Pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverse mouth I hate. Of course, this is why we need Christ. We need the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. We need His his supernatural birth uh, in the womb of a virgin conceived and born in Mary's womb and brought, for, or brought forth out of Mary's womb without original sin, conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. We need His sinlessness. We need His perfect obedience. We need Him to be a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, suffering and dying, taking the penalty for all who put their trust in Him. We need His burial, remaining under the power of death for a time. We need His resurrection rising up by the power of God for our justification. We need that because God hates sin. And my friends, sin is a part of us. God's wrath against sin will be God's wrath against you apart from Jesus Christ. He doesn't just hate the hands that shed innocent blood in Proverbs 6. He hates those who sow dissension among the brethren. In other words, those, those people who sow that dissension. He hates sin and His wrath and hatred is poured out upon sinners for all eternity in hell. And that wrath of God is revealed even now against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. We by nature come into this world as children of wrath, as children of disobedience. Ephesians 2.1 And apart from Jesus Christ reconciling us to God, bearing the hatred and the wrath that God has against us and against our sin, apart from that work of Christ, you and I will experience firsthand every last drop of the infinite wrath of God for all eternity. I say every last drop. It's just going to keep dripping and dropping. A flood. A lake of fire for all eternity. That's why we need Christ. That's why we need to take refuge in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says that the blood of Abel cried out from the ground against Cain who murdered Abel, but the blood of Jesus speaks a better word than that of Abel. You can come under the blood. You can be washed in the blood. David committed murder. He was washed in the blood. Psalm 51. And he was cleansed. And the Lord renewed his spirit. And the Lord was merciful and gracious to forgive his sins because of Jesus Christ. God hates all sin. This is really just the the very basics of the gospel. It's why we need a gospel. It's why we have a gospel. God hates all sin, but God especially hates flagrant acts of disobedience, such as the Jews' flight to Egypt and subsequent idolatry. God hates all sin, but God especially hates flagrant acts of disobedience. As I said, that a flagrant act of disobedience in our text would be the Jews where they have the will of God set squarely in front of their faces. Here it is in black and white. Do not go to Egypt. And they flagrantly violate the commandment of God with a high hand. 
and with a stubborn heart. God hates that especially. And then when they went to Egypt and began worshiping the false gods of Egypt, God says, as He said to the Jews in Jerusalem before the captivity, do not do this abominable thing that I hate. Why was this so flagrant? It was flagrant because of the privilege that these people had. Chapter 42 and verses 1 through 3 tells us that uh, from the least to the greatest, all these people came to Jeremiah the prophet. Think of the privilege of having Jeremiah the prophet in your midst, an inspired prophet of God. You don't just have the Old Testament law, but you have Jeremiah the prophet to help explain it to you, to, under inspiration, bring fresh revelations from the mouth of God, to go before you and intercede in prayer on your behalf, and to bring answers to your questions. Think of the privilege they had from these living oracles of God. Jeremiah and the Old Testament Scriptures that they had up to that point. What an amazing privilege that they had. And chapter 44, verses 4 and 5, as we mentioned, the Lord says, I have sent to you all my servants, the prophets, rising early. That's, that's God using anthropomorphic language, using human type language. It's as if God is rising up early Himself and sending these prophets, making certain, sparing no expense to make sure that they hear this warning Do not do this abominable thing that I hate. So they had the privilege. And they had a profession. Why was this a flagrant act of disobedience? Because it was against the profession that they had made. Chapter 42, verses 5 and 6, I already mentioned this. They make it clear using oath-like language that they will obey whatever answer comes from the Lord through Jeremiah. When God gives them His counsel, His commandment, they will obey it. If God says don't go to Egypt, they will not go to Egypt. They have professed and they have promised allegiance and obedience to the Lord their God. Chapter 43, in verses 1-7. through you can see as well how they flagrantly went against the solemn profession that they had made. So it's clear. They they professed and then they acted the part of the hypocrite in their bold-faced rejection of God's Word. Thirdly, so they had privilege, profession, also the history. God has to say to them, have you forgotten what I did? in judging your, your disobedience and bringing that Babylonian captivity? Have you forgotten that recent history when you disobeyed me, when you worshipped idols? Indeed, we can say that they had a historical understanding of Egypt that should have been brought to mind. Egypt is the nation that enslaved them. Pharaoh, historically, was their oppressor, was their enemy. And throughout God's Word, he warns the people, do not go back to Egypt. Don't return. Don't seek help and shelter from the very nation that I redeemed you out of. I am the Lord your God. This is the preamble to the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God, which have brought you out of the land of Egypt. Don't go back to the land of Egypt. They had the history. They should have known better. And and this is a flagrant act of disobedience because of the rank, stark unbelief. We read, I'm not going to read all these specific, uh, specific verses here, but we read it in the Scripture reading that at the end of chapter 41 I just mentioned, and then later in our reading, it says that they were afraid. God says stay in the land of Judah, and they say no, we need to leave town because we're afraid, because... Babylon is going to destroy us. Because Jeremiah, we think there's a conspiracy here. Baruch has set you against us and there's this conspiracy and it's not really the Word of God. You're just trying to lead us to destruction. This is not pragmatic. This is not beneficial. 
we're afraid. Rather than believing God's Word, rather than believing God's promise, God says, verse 10 of chapter 42, if you will remain in this land, then I will build you and not pull you down. I will plant you and not pluck you up. For I will relent concerning the disaster that I have brought upon you. Do not be afraid of the king of Babylon of whom you are afraid. Do not be afraid of him. For I am with you to save you and deliver you from his hand. So basically they're calling God a liar. God hates that. God hates that. It's, a, it's, it's flagrant disobedience. And then of course the excuses in chapter 44... The men bring their false narrative that, hey, when we worshipped idols, everything was great. And then when we stopped worshipping idols, everything fell apart. Um, Sort of a 1619 project, something like that. You know, this new narrative that, uh, you know, when we obeyed God, things were horrible. When we disobeyed God, things were great. Uh, What a ridiculous false narrative given what we know about the people's idolatry and subsequent destruction by the Babylonians and later uh, in in Egypt after after this point. And the women bringing the excuse, well, you know, we did this with the consent of our husbands. And so they're either blaming their husbands or, or whatever they're trying to say here. The point is they say, well, we've taken all proper steps in making this choice and we've gotten feedback from our husbands and excuses, lame excuses, pathetic excuses for disobeying God and flagrantly rebelling against His revealed will. Um, More could be said, but uh, lame excuses. Finally, pride. Chapter 43, verse 2 speaks of them as men of pride Uh, Later, it speaks in very stark terms that God has spoken His Word and they say we're going to do what our mouths have spoken over against what God's Word has declared. Pride. Thinking that obeying God is going to be foolish and that obeying their own ideas and their own principles, their own plan... Obeying that, leaning on their own understanding is somehow going to be wiser than the will of God. Uh, Proverbs 26, verse 12, Do you see a man wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. God says this. We think this. We think our plan is going to work out better than God's plan. God hates that. He says, don't do that. Do not do this abominable thing that I hate. Now, Michigan Ballot Proposal 3, this Right to Reproductive Freedom Initiative, is similarly a flagrant act of disobedience which God utterly hates. He hates it. He says, do not do this abominable thing that I hate. Don't do it. It's a flagrant act of disobedience. And we think in similar terms of the reasons that it is a flagrant act of disobedience. Now, uh, first of all, think of the privilege that we have. We have, in the state of Michigan, more Bibles than we know what to do with. Bibles that clearly declare, thou shalt not murder in Exodus chapter 20. That declare in Exodus chapter 21 that a baby in the womb, if it is... Uh, injured, or if it dies, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That is a human being. Psalm 139. God is knitting that child together in its mother's womb. He sees its unformed substance. It is a human being. And to kill that human being is murder. That is the clear teaching of the Bible that we in the state of Michigan have. We have it in numerous translations. And they all, as far as I know, say the same thing. That you shall not murder. Do not do this abominable thing that I hate. And that the child is a child. A human. The Noahic covenant that God made with all the nations of the world in Noah. We all descend from Noah. And it's very clear that God says that uh, He made man in His own image. 
And you shall not shed the blood of my image bearer, he says. And whoever sheds the blood of another person, their blood will be shed. And the very next thing he says is be fruitful and multiply. I don't think there's any confusion biblically on this. And quite frankly, in the state of Michigan, above most places on the face of planet earth, we have this information. Just as the Jews had it. They had the oracles of God. They had Jeremiah. Well, we have Jeremiah. We have Moses. We have 66 books of the Bible. And we know that God hates the hands that shed innocent blood. We have that privilege. In fact, in the Constitution of the State of Michigan, we give thanks for that privilege. We, the people of the State of Michigan, grateful to Almighty God for the blessings of freedom and earnestly desiring to secure these blessings undiminished to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution. So we have all the privilege in the world. I mean, just look at the west side of the state. Um, Historically, uh, the presence of the Reformed faith and of biblical Christianity. We've had a great deal of it on the east side, but especially on the west side. Michigan is a place that God over the years has blessed with His truth in amazing ways. And so for us, in a bold-faced act of rebellion, to, to engage in this sort of proposal three, this flagrant disobedience, God hates it. Do not do this abominable thing that I hate. We also have the profession. The profession that's stated in our preamble. We have our governor being sworn in on a Bible. Now, whatever she may believe, the fact is God knows that she did that. God knows that historically in Western society, the purpose of an oath was to call down accountability from Almighty God. And by using a Bible that's inspired by the God of the Bible, uh, I don't think there's any confusion in the mind of God as to her willingness to be under His authority. Uh, His judgment. His accountability. But even if she didn't understand that, she's still under it. But you see this profession. This profession. Even in the state of uh, Michigan, we have in Detroit that insignia in, in the center of the city, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. We have Bible verses everywhere. It's right in front of our faces. We even take the time and spend the money to to display these things publicly. We also have quite a history. We have biblical history in the Scriptures. We have world history, the judgments of God against nations and empires. Time immemorial when they disobey God, when they don't value human life, when they reject Christ, they are cast down and destroyed, and torn apart. We have the history. We have recent history. We have God's judgment and chastisement in the world today, in our nation today. We see Western society returning, as it were, to the dark ages of paganism. It's as Jesus said, the the one devil decides to leave for a time, and uh, the place is swept clean, and seven devils worse than the first come back. That's our society. Uh, There's unbelief. Unbelief. It's fear versus faith. People are saying, well, abortion is an option because of all the fearful consequences. What about the the potential for pain and suffering of a woman in childbirth? What about the emotional duress? What about these factors, which by the way, the Bible says in Genesis chapter 3 that there will be uh, pain and there will be emotional duress in childbirth, so to say that that's a reason for abortion basically means every single pregnancy would qualify biblically because there's going to be challenges in those areas in every single pregnancy. But, but the fact is we say, well, it's too fearful to obey God and keep the baby. It's just too fearful. We don't think it's going to work out right. We know better than God. But we're forgetting that this is the God who casts body and soul into hell. We should be a lot more afraid of the God who hates the hands that shed innocent blood and the calamity that He will bring upon us for murdering these little babies. We should be a lot more concerned about that than we are about some of these other factors which, which 
however horrific they are physically or mentally, it's nothing compared to hell. It's nothing compared to hell. And the excuses. Now, there are many excuses. I'm just going to focus on one. Uh, There is this exception clause for rape. And I know that makes us feel uncomfortable to talk about that. But I want you to just for a moment, let's put our thinking caps on and and, and just consider this idea. Well, uh, a woman was raped and therefore we have, she has the right to murder the child that is the result of that rape. Okay, nine months after the rape, she has the right to murder that child because of her own physical and, and mental well-being. Well, let's, let's consider the rapist. Nine months after the rape, does she have the right to kill the rapist? Does Governor Whitmer believe Does our Secretary of State believe that the woman who was raped by the rapist has the right to kill the rapist nine months later? No, they don't. In fact, they would circle the wagons. They would prosecute a woman who killed the rapist. They would prosecute her as a murderer because they defend the life of the rapist. By the way, biblically, he should get the death penalty. But they would oppose that too. We would come in and say, this rapist deserves the death penalty. And Governor Whitmer would say, oh no, we can't do that. That's unjust. We need to protect the life of the rapist. Can't murder him. Can't even put him to death according to just laws of capital punishment. We're going to protect the murderer. We're not going to amend the Constitution to give the woman the right to murder the rapist But we're going to amend the Constitution to allow the woman to murder the innocent child who who, who never asked to be conceived under these circumstances, whose life in many ways will be negatively impacted. We could say even this little son or daughter is a victim of that rape. And so you can't murder, you can't kill the rapist, but you can kill one of the victims. Boy, that doesn't make any sense, does it? Sin never makes sense. But this is the sort of excuse, this is the sort of exception clause where we want to protect the life of the rapist but not the life of the innocent little baby in the womb of that woman. Nonsense. God has given us over to foolishness. It's not just evil, it's ridiculous. And of course, the pride. The pride. Proud in our own eyes. It is is, uh, worse for, for us in our pride than even for a fool, as we read in the Proverbs. Uh, We think it's going to work out, but notice chapter 44, verse 7. Why do you commit this great evil against yourselves? Abortion, as we'll see this evening, God willing, is not just an act of flagrant disobedience to God that He hates. It's actually self-defeating. And it it, it is an action that is completely completely uh, self-destructive. It's not helpful. It's not pragmatic in any way. It's actually utter foolishness that will bring the destruction even of the sort of people that are wanting abortion. We'll, we'll talk about this, that this evening. But I want, I want to just wrap this up briefly. God's hatred of sin is more than mere ethical distaste. It involves active opposition. Now, I've run out of time so because the Scripture reading was like five times longer than usual. But um, read, read these chapters. We read them. Think about what they say. They don't just say that God is sitting back and He has this ethical distaste and repudiation of the flagrant disobedience of His people. He says very clearly He will set His face against them. He will watch over them for evil, for calamity. God's hatred of sin is an active opposition to sin. Physically, spiritually, politically, economically, militarily, socially. We say as Christians, if God is for us, who can be against us? But if God is against our nation and our culture and our society, who could be for us? What hope do we have if God sets His face against us in opposition, in plucking us up and tearing us down. And my friends, true believers are imitators of God. Ephesians 5.1, be imitators of God as dear children. 
If we're to be men and women after God's own heart, if we're to have the mind of Christ, if we're to be imitators of God, then we love what He loves and we hate what He hates. Psalm 97.10, all who love the Lord hate evil. Proverbs 8.13, we read it earlier. The, The first half of the verse says that to fear the Lord is to hate evil. To hate it with an active opposition. Romans 12. We're to have our minds renewed. Verse 2. To know the will of God. And then once we know what God loves and what He hates, what His will is, what is our responsibility? Verse 9. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Now we do that with an active, lawful opposition. Notice Romans 12, do not be overcome by evil. Don't try to fight fire with fire or fight sin with sin or fight lawlessness with lawlessness. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So we need to be actively and lawfully opposing and hating what God hates, seeking not to take wrath into our own hands. God will bring the wrath, not avenging ourselves, but rather overcoming evil with good. We have a responsibility to do that. In fact, that represents true love. There's a sense in which we hate the wicked. We oppose their schemes. We find them to be distasteful. But there's a sense in which we need to love our society. Romans 13.8 Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. He goes on to list the commandments against adultery, murder, theft, false witness, covetousness. He says if there's any other commandment, all are summed up in this saying, namely, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. So in your conduct with other people, in your opposition to abortion, you have a duty to love people by obeying the law of God concerning them. By not sinning against them. By obeying these various commandments in your interactions with them. That, in one sense, is loving. It's biblical love. And we need to overcome evil with that biblical love. With good. And just uh, in closing, what can we do to actively and lawfully oppose Proposal 3? Well, if you're a true believer in the state of Michigan... Well, you're a true believer in Christ who lives in the state of Michigan. Uh, You're going to actively and lawfully oppose this proposal in at least three ways. let Let me suggest that these are the three best ways. First, you're going to vote. We're not dealing with candidates and political parties. That's not the purpose of this pulpit. But there are babies whose lives hang in the balance. Uh, There are potential uh, outbreaks of pedophilia, given some of the ambiguity of this language. This could open the door to all kinds of perversion in our society. And in order to protect those vulnerable people, we need to show up or vote, uh, you know, uh, vote from home or go to the office and get the, uh, get the ballot, fill it out, mail it in. We need to vote on this proposal and we need to vote it down. That is obvious, but the Bible says, he who knows what he ought to do and does it not, for him it is sin. So get out there and vote this down. Secondly, we need to warn other people. We need to get correct information from reputable Christian organizations and we need to get those things in the hands of people so that they understand the great plague that this proposal represents. And thirdly, uh, to the extent that we're able, we should be giving to these sorts of causes because we can't all be out there on the front lines. Perhaps we can give to those who are to print these materials and to help to oppose this great flagrant act of disobedience which provokes the wrath of God. Proverbs 24, 11 and 12, deliver those who are drawn toward death and hold back those stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, surely we did not know this, Does not he who weighs the hearts consider it? He who keeps your soul, does he not know it? And will he not render to each man according to his deeds? So now you know. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father,
You are the God of life. You have made life. You have made human life in your own image, male and female. And you have placed your image upon man. And we have dishonored and disgraced it. And yet, you have commanded that we not shed the blood of man, that we not murder, that we not engage in anything that would unjustly take the life of ourselves or our neighbor. And you have declared that you hate this abomination of the shedding of innocent blood. O Lord, we pray that you by your grace would enable us and others throughout this land to oppose flagrant disobedience to your commandments so that this proposal would fail and that you would be honored and glorified in it and that many, many human lives would be protected. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.